Let's just begin in silence. Just do what you need to do to get in the space. Put your feet on the floor and take a deep breath. Last week I uh, <clears throat> read to you um, the way that I am beginning my own daily spiritual practice. I'll read to you again or recite to you. It's easy to remember. Grace be in my head and in my thinking. Grace be in my eyes and in my seeing. Grace be in my ears and in my hearing. Grace be in my mouth and in my speaking. Grace be in my heart and in my understanding. And grace be in my end and at my departing. All right. So no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. <clears throat> so though it seems ironic and paradoxical, I'm going to put this on the floor for the time being. Thanks. Um, we are on a journey to where we already are. And the destination of the journey is our true self. Um, the true self is not something that we achieve. It's not something the, that we attain. Uh, it's something rather that we realize. But we can lose awareness of this in an Blink on eye. David White has a poem in which he quotes a woman as saying, Ten years ago, I looked aside for a second and it became my life. And everybody in this room knows what that's like. You can get snared by um, something? That thing? Or um, games on this thing? Or something else. So the, <clears throat> the general theme that we have been using is um, um, making sacred the already sacred journey. And two things that have been personally helpful to me in doing this work are the things that most people find helpful when they make a road trip, a map, you need a map, and a GPS. I've become in incredibly reliant on my GPS. I am one of those people who does not have a good internal sense of direction. Mm. I can get lost when I get up at night to go to the bathroom. So Poor it's just plants. one of those things. <laughs> so once we know what our hope for destination is, which in this case is individuation or wholeness, <clears throat> both of those words come from Jungian psychology and my borrowing from Robert Johnson. Then we're free to <clears throat> choose what modes of transportation, <clears throat> pardon me, we want to use and, and what guidance that we can rely on along the way. Mm. And the guidance that I have suggested, love, honesty, freedom, those three things. And then we can decide on the traits of the people that we want to travel with and the kind of traits that we would like to bring to the trip. I mean, do people want to travel with you? Are you the kind of person that people look forward to making a journey with? And those traits, I think, are peace and joy and hope and patience and <clears throat> humility. Now, one of the way, reasons that Holly and I suggested this new theme um, is that we seem to be lost in our country. We seem to have lost our way. And um, I was talking this over with a colleague of mine this week, and uh, we were talking about the things that we've been reading and seeing in the paper and on the news, the 
increasing threat coming from Putin about nuclear stuff, and it's just a scary time. And things that are going on in this country, and my colleague pointed out to me, he said, um, I said, you know, American democracy seems to me in great peril. And he pointed out two, two things to me that are obvious once somebody points them out, but they're not obvious because we don't think about them often. He, he first said that we have never had true democracy in this country. And the second thing he said was that he did not believe the collective unconscious of our culture was ready for democracy. He said that for those who are, have worked to gain and control power are not really ready to live equally with other people. So uh, he went on to surprise me. He doesn't come to this class. He doesn't know a lot about what I do this kind of work. I mean, he knows what I do, but not the content of what I do. And he said, we need a new myth. So there is a, a myth that works in this country. It's a shadow myth. It's a very powerful myth. It's a shadow myth. So I've spent three weeks in here talking about the Grail story. The Grail story is a very famous ancient story, dates to about the 13th, 14th century, and it colors everything. It's has many different versions, but it's in most cultures in, in the Western world. I got my introduction to the Grail story from Robert Johnson. And um, I think now, after spending time with this myth of Parsifal and the Holy Grail, which is a very masculine story from a very masculine point of view, it is time to invoke the feminine. Wisdom is feminine. You know that. Sophia is feminine, female. And so... So now Callista is going to come sit where you are because she's been begging for this. <laughs> well, she did say at last happy hour. She sat next to me at last happy hour and said, so when are yeah. you going to get off this yeah. male thing? And yeah, when you stop being male. That was not yeah. exactly a quote, but that's pretty close to it, isn't it? Yeah. So <clears throat> I'm turning off my mic now. All right, then. See ya. Um, Callista, this is dedicated to you. No, I'm just kidding. This, I hope... We do it justice, and I think that there's a good endeavor here. Um, I want to say I love what you said about maps and journeys, and one of my mentors said, don't mistake the map for the terrain. I've heard that. The experience is the, is the learning, right? But anyway, so I have shared this story in here before, but I'll repeat it briefly today just as a way to kind of frame what we're trying to do. One of my favorite philosophical dialogues in Plato's Symposium is a whole bunch of guys, because women weren't allowed into the mind places at the time. Um, anyway, these guys are sitting around, guys of all ages, and they're drinking wine, and apparently Plato was known for his kind of intellectual orgies. Um, I mean that both in both ways. <laughs> And um, they were talking about the meaning of love, or eros. And one of the wonderings comes from Aristophanes, who was one of the people apparently present at this dialogue, who tells this fantastic story about how human bodies used to be joined. We essentially had two bodies in one. So four arms, four legs, both sets of anatomy, and we cartwheeled about the earth like in a tumbling circular way. And the, the God, they were whole, they were complete, and they were extremely powerful. So, of course, the gods got really jealous of this power. And they split the human in half. So our pursuit is to become whole again. And I don't mean that in this kind of um, male-female heterosexual way. I mean that in the masculine-feminine becoming whole again. Our wholeness comes from reconciling the masculine and the feminine, from finding both, from finding expressions in both. And the problem is that we live, as if it were this simple, but <laughs> the problem is that we live in an androcentric world 
a male-centered world. It's been that way for thousands of years. This is not new. So in some sense, none of us sitting in this room has any idea what we're looking for. We don't have a model. There's um, a deep stirring, though, that something ain't right. It's from my favorite Hafiz poem. I felt some anxiety about not having a complete myth to offer that rivals or complements Parsifal. I thought, oh, shoot, I, don't, I haven't settled on the one myth. What is the one myth that explicates the feminine journey? And I think it is true that we need new myths. And I will be so bold as to say that I think Jesus, who is the teacher that we've relied on in this class more than any other, would agree. I love that in his resurrected state, who was the first person Jesus spoke to? Mary. Was a woman, and he said, don't cling to me. Go make a new myth. Go find that wholeness. And I think what we are as the poem says, so damn thirsty for is the feminine. So uh, I, I want to say that we are eventually heading toward mm -hmm. doing that Jesus archetype story mm -hmm. that Edward Edinger wrote about and that you nagged me so long <laughs> to read and I didn't do it until just recently. Uh -huh. And two things about reading that is that one is that it, impressed me as how incredibly brilliant that guy is. But eventually we're going to talk about the Jesus archetype and that what we're doing right now hopefully is laying a foundation for that. Richard Orr says that Jesus is a, a the um, archetype of this integrated personality because he is a feminine soul in a male body. And um, the patriarchal structure of the early Jesus movement because they were Jewish, wrote the women mostly out of the story. But the women, females, were Jesus' prime supporters and, uh, uh, and apostles. I got found by a cartoon this week. <laughs> I love cartoons. And the caption on the cartoon is that the woman is saying to the man, uh, all right, come tell me the truth. Are you seeing another woman? <laughs> I love this. How many of you are familiar with this optical illusion? Mm -hmm. Okay. So you know that you can look at the woman in this thing and you can see that she's an old crone, which is actually a pretty good archetype. It's a fabulous archetype, but we've made it negative. Yeah. She's the wise woman. You see the woman, the mm -hmm. old crone, she's got a big chin mm -hmm. and so forth. And then if you look at the, the drawing in another way, she's a demure young woman with her head turned away. You see the neck necklace around her, her neck, her choker carlin. I, I love everything about this cartoon. It's a play on words, one of my favorite optical illusions. And when I first saw this, um, it, it spoke to me immediately about our need to see women, the feminine, differently and have be able to move back and forth between different ways of seeing. In the, in the territory through which we're making the already sacred journey, um, there are, as the old hymn has it, many dangers, toils, and snares. And we need to be aware of these things, and we need to be saved from these things. I'm not going into detail about them today. I think we'll do that next week. Um, but I do want to name one from which all sorts of evils flow. And it's what the scholars, historians, sociologists, theologians refer to as theocracy. The ancient Egyptians lived in a theocracy. Their belief was that Pharaoh was a child of the sun god. The Roman Empire in which the Christian movement got its start was a theocracy because the belief was that Julius Caesar was the son of God. As a matter of fact, many of the titles that the early Jesus followers borrowed to apply to Jesus, they got from Caesar. Caesar was called the Prince of Peace. Caesar was called the, the, the son of God. And so when the early 
Jesus followers, took those titles and put them on Jesus. It upset those who had that particular religious orientation and believed that Caesar was the Prince of Peace, Lord of Lords, Son of the Most High. Those titles were given to him. So some version of God is appealed to in um, the current movement in this country that is moving toward authoritarianism. You may have noticed this week that Italy has elected a fascist governor or leader. The, the, the world is moving in this, and more women, which we should talk about, I don't think we have talked about, but more women, even in our public, elected to our public officials, are giving uh, evidence that they bought into the myth of masculinity in order to achieve power. There are a lot of women who aren't, too. Eh? There's a lot of women who aren't, too, buying into the myth of... Well, that's good. But there are a lot who are, and they're getting attention. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I, and we, we didn't make room in this to talk about this, but I think, you know, the, the move of the Supreme Court to deny women the right to have control over their bodies is a move toward theocracy because it's the guys who are making the rules about this, state laws. And, and all of this, by the way, in case you're not aware, has been the result of years and years of careful planning by evangelical Christians who have moved into the political realm. And, and uh, if people are waking up and saying, oh, we need to change this, it is not going to be easy to do that because you've got years of this iceberg moving in the particular direction where it's going. So what you see going on in Iran, where a 22-year-old woman refused to wear a headscarf, was arrested by the police, yeah. and, and, yeah. and, and, and killed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and now you've got this uproar going on in Iran and a big debate among those who know a lot more about politics than I do about whether that uproar is going to do any good or not, whether it's going to mean the overthrow of the Iranian government or whether it won't. And a lot of people say that it won't. Mm -hmm. So intrinsic to this theocracy is misogyny. Misogyny is made up of two Greek words, miso, which means hate, and uh, the word that we get gynecology from is also part of that. Misogyny is hatred of woman, hatred of female. So this, this attitude has a deep, long history in this country. I went through sexual ethics training as a Methodist in order to be a Methodist minister or get my ordination in the Methodist Church and somebody had put together a compilation of interviews that were done with lay men in the Methodist Church who had encountered a female Methodist minister. And what they said were things that would that were just appalling. Like a man said to his, his minister, female minister, I'm not sure I can take communion from you because I'll be thinking about what your body looks like under your robe. These and there were multitudes of that kind of thing that was on. So this sexist, sexual, anti-feminine, objectifying, uh, idealizing women thing is um, is part of our history. The official charter that established the first colony in Virginia in 1609 declared that one purpose of the colony was to convert the, quote, people in those parts unto the true worship of God in Christian religion. Now you get the irony of that? Here were people who came here in order to practice religious freedom who were enforcing their religious views on other people. And, and, and um, there are politicians in our country today who are fueled by these really misunderstood notions of what being a Christian is all about that wants to move it more into politics. It's in the pulpits in uh, evangelical churches in this city. You can just go Google and you can find it. So when, when, um, when we get deeper into the Christian archetype, into the Jesus archetype, 
you're going to see how focused Jesus was on inclusion. Inclusion, um, I, I heard a guy give a sermon here recently in which he said two of Jesus' primary things were crossing boundaries and building bridges. It was a pretty good sermon, I think. Did you give that sermon? Is that what we're to understand? I don't know. So, you know, I don't want to idealize the feminine. I don't want to demonize men. But I do think that women just know more about love and inclusion than guys do. Because guys don't give birth. Yes, and that aspect of ourselves has been deeply submerged and suppressed. And so this awakening is about learning to listen to it again. And, and for you as a man, identified as a male, to also identify with that, that awakening, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I think it's important to push a little bit on, it's not just the evangelical church that, that, is, that has this issue with patriarchy and male dominance and misogyny. It, it pervades many, many, many religious and secular spaces. It's easy to put it out there where this isn't an evangelical church, so we don't have that problem. It is pervasive, right? Yes, it is. Yeah. So I, I think we need to name that so that we can see it. You know, not, it, it, and again, it's, it's so important, men in this room. It is not an anti-male move. It's not an anti-masculine move. It's a cohesion, a bringing together an uplifting of what is the best parts of the masculine and the feminine, right? So we need to, I want to just state that plainly, okay? Yeah, so some say today we're ushering in, today, not today, today, but these days, um, ushering in a fifth wave of feminism. We would currently be in the fourth wave of feminism that's been since about the late 1990s. And this fifth wave that is kind of bleeding into the fourth wave is no longer wants to play by patriarchal rules, is guided by intersectionality, which means it recognizes the fact of our interrelatedness, the fact that even though we're distinct, we also have places of overlap and shared interests. So it honors our similarities and our differences. It prioritizes the abolition and needs of all historically marginalized people, not just women of a certain race, not just women of a certain background, not just women, all historically marginalized people. And it seeks to overhaul the current systems, not participate in them in the same way that we have over time, but to overhaul them and create something new. So That's a very important point. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and that will be very, very, very hard. Yeah, it is very hard because we will meet backlash in Iran. We're seeing that actually causing death, right? So it, it will be hard. And we need our, our men, our, our masculine allies to sit, come alongside and to say, yes, there's something else that we can build together. So this fifth wave is focused on coalition building. And even though I won't get into all of these authors individually or explicate their texts, I want to honor just some of the women who absolutely informed my thinking. One is Rianne Eisler. She wrote a book called The Chalice and the Blade. It's excellent. It's an ex- Did you read? Have you read it? Okay. <laughs> I see recognition. Um, it's an excellent book. Um, Bell Hooks, my God, I love this woman. Uh, she died in December, and she... She refused to not talk about love in the realm of politics, of social movements, and policy making. She really brought that voice into the room. Um, just finding Maureen Murdoch, um, she wrote a book called the, the Heroine's Journey, which I'll work a lot from today. And then Catherine Keller, who is, gosh, she's a really deep thinker. She's an eco-feminist theologian who really says what we are afraid of is our depth and we need to get in touch with our depth. So a couple of other things to kind of put forth as we move forward. This is from Keller. Um, our, our origins are in the deep. We, we come from that inky blackness over which the spirit brooded. 
That's our origin. Our origin is in the depths. Um, Bell Hook says, feminism is for everybody. It's not just a woman thing. <laughs> it's for everybody. And Eisler really writes about this idea that there can be societies in which difference is not necessarily equated with inferiority or superiority. That difference is just the power of a pluralistic democracy. Right? And Maureen Murdoch, this is a quote, says, women emulated the male heroic journey because there were no other images to emulate. But we need to learn that there's a true source of our own validation. We have our own journey to make that is not trying to fit into the hero's journey, but making our own journey. The feminine is effectively about embracing being rather than doing. This is, we could say, uh, contemplation and action. How are we being in the world? And the feminine is embracing of that compassion, that wholeness, that love, right? The masculine is like, let's charge forth and do that in the world. We need both. We can't sit around and just be. We have to do. <laughs> so the, the combination is, um, is wholeness. So even though I will use the pronouns she and female and feminine a lot, I want to be really clear again that the heroine's journey is not just for those who identify as female. It's about discovering the feminine within. It may specifically apply to how women need a different journey, but it is, is about discovering each for each one of us the feminine within. Mm -hmm. I want to acknowledge my limitations. Um, we live in a culture that doesn't have a healthy balance of masculine and feminine. I don't have a model for this. I would venture to say that most of us sitting in this room don't because it's generations and generations and generations old, right? Um, probably I'm also limited by the, I, I know I'm limited by the fact that I'm a white woman situated in America. So the lens through which I see things is impacted by my race, my class, my social standing, et cetera. That's gonna be true for all of us. My way, of course, whatever I'm about to say is not the only way, but I'll use personal narrative to help explain some of these things. Um, there are myths and cultures from all over the world that are explorations of the feminine archetype. Um, a really good book that explores the sort of quality of myths from around the world is Women Who Run With the Wolves. And she's a Jungian psychologist who takes myths from many different cultures and explores the female archetype within them. It's really good and dense, but you can read it kind of out of order in one section at a time. But for most of the time today, and we're not going to get even remotely through this, I want to introduce you to the cyclical stages of the heroine's journey. I know it's kind of a small, smallish slide, but it's placed next to the hero's journey, which is Joseph Campbell's journey that has um, really is, is present in almost all literature, yeah, in the great movies, in the hero movies, in Star Wars, right? Luke Skywalker is on the quintessential hero's journey to come to, to, come to some way of being in the world. Campbell, um, Campbell was a consultant on that movie. Yeah, I yeah. bet. I don't doubt it. Um, Maureen Murdoch, who really kind of came up with this heroine's journey was herself a student of Joseph Campbell's. So she kind of went, wait a minute, this is great, it's valid, it has a lot of good and worthy things, but we also need this, okay? Um, I want to encourage you to do your own reading, to discover, to find yourself in this journey, in both journeys, and, and to really explore where you might be. It's a, an important part of the, important part of the map. So um, if you've been here the last three weeks or if you've been joining us online, you know that I've been talking about uh, the Parsifal journey, the journey of the Holy Grail. Um, and I base my teaching, although there's been a ton of research on this, and I mentioned Emma Young's book. She spent 35 years researching the Grail myth. And it has a book about it, which was on the, one of the slides that we did last week. Uh, Emma Young's book is expensive. It's not an easy read, but it's really well worth it if you are inclined to move in that direction. The book that I based my teaching on uh, and are, are the, the book and the notes that I made from lectures and times with Robert Johnson. He, Understanding Masculine Psychology, was the first book that Robert wrote. 
He, um, after be becoming a union analyst, began teaching. He studied myths, and this was the myth that he first talked about. It is an outstanding book. It's easy to read, I think. You could read this book in two evenings easily. Mm -hmm. or Bill also reads extraordinarily fast. He texted me this week, I'm rereading She for the second time. I was like, okay, well, I don't know anyone else who reads. Well, this is the best book that Robert wrote, with one exception. His, his biography, which is called Balancing Heaven and Earth, uh, which was written uh, in cooperation with Jerry Rule, who used to be here at the Jung Center across the street over there, is just a beautiful book. As a matter of fact, it's one of those books that when I read it, I kept thinking, I hope this doesn't end. Mm, it would just, and I learned things yeah. in that book that even hanging out with Robert in person and hearing him in person, I never knew. And it's just really great to understand how he got to the position that he did. I mentioned in here, this is not my notes, it'll go out Tuesday. But Robert had a dream when he was in uh, an analysis in Zurich. And uh, as a result of that, Carl Jung said to him, you should never marry. And he didn't. I cannot, as a, as a therapist, imagine ever saying that to somebody. I can imagine saying you should not go out in public, but you know, not. <laughs> it's about the same thing. That's a joke. Anyway, <laughs> Robert did uh, end up living with a woman and caring. Uh, I don't know what kind of relationship they had, but he cared for her children. But near the end of his life, he entered a monastery. And just really a fascinating, fascinating man. So then he wrote this book, which is she, called Understanding Feminine Psychology, and it's awful. Oh. <laughs> you said it. I didn't. It's not a good book. I was definitely like, eh. I mean, I had a lot of, um, what does he mean by this? Notes in the margins. So it operates from a very traditional male-female role uh, type of view. And, it, and even though you love Robert Johnson, and I really wanted to be tender about that, he asked me what I thought. I was like, yeah, good. Um. <laughs> well, I thought the same thing when I read it myself. Yeah. However, Robert is on to something. He was on to something. He died two years ago. He, he was on to something. And that is by studying these ancient myths. And he has a dozen, well, he has a half a dozen books that are about the myths. Mm -hmm. He has he, she, we, ecstasy, a couple of others that are all based on the ancient myths. He was on to something mm -hmm. about the importance of, no, of resurrecting these stories and making them relevant for the living of our lives. Um, what, what I've criticized him about is that I don't think men can teach the feminine. Hmm. That's not our calling. As a matter of fact, it's ironic that Robert, a man, was writing a book about understanding feminine psychology, which I don't think as good a person as he was could do. What I do believe is that if we want to make the sacred journey, the already sacred journey, we have got to learn to think mythologically. So one of the targets we're shooting at in all of these talks right now is to come to see the Jesus narrative through a mythological lens. That's why we're doing all this background work, okay? You've got to learn to think mythologically. And right now we're talking about the feminine archetype, wherever it is to be found, touched, and enlivened. So not just in um, women, though this is a feminine thing, it's also mostly human. So. If you hear either one of us speaking, in our speaking, appearing to limit our talk to um, women, we've been misheard. Um, we, we need both for And completeness. women specifically need to hear this, too. So it's both and. So, Holly, right? if you hear me talking specifically about women, you've misheard me. Okay. <laughs> it's both and. It's both yeah, and. It's both and. Yeah. So... Um, we're ready. Are you ready to go on a journey? This is a map. The terrain is your life. The terrain is your lived experience.
And we're going to uh, go for about 15 minutes and then take a break. Yeah, because there's a lot of There's spaces. so much. There's so much, and really, we may only get through one. <laughs> we'll see. Patience. Um, first stage of this journey, of the heroine's journey, is separation from the feminine. For all of us, that occurs, because we're born. We're, we're separated from the feminine at birth, right? In birth, we go from this unified state to a differentiated state, and we're physically separated from the mother. Every single one of us goes through that. I think, unless you got here some other way, and I'd love to hear about it. Sounds <laughs> fascinating. But we spend our spiritual lives in one way or another trying to return to a unitive state, to return to some, some kind of sense of wholeness in the world. I think this is why we use language like born again, right, or being reborn. I want to be very sure that I'm not talking about a doctrinal conversion. I'm talking about this kind of conversion that comes from integration, from, from, from pulling together, okay? Spiritually and psychologically, however, this mother-daughter relationship specifically is very complex, very complex. Um, it's so complex, in fact, that many myths, fairy tales, think about Disney, they just kill the mother off so they don't have to deal with her. Seriously. How many princesses in the Disney movies have a mother? They don't. It's about identification with the father most of the time. So the, this mother figure is either dead or replaced by a wicked stepmother. That's how complex this relationship is. It's hard to touch. Maybe I'm glad I don't have daughters. I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> but I am a daughter, and it is complex. I could go on and on, but I won't. This is not therapy. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> in this phase, this, what we separate either from what could be perceived as the good mother or the bad mother. Um, the bad mother, not exactly sure where I am. You can keep tapping that until it fills up. The bad mother is defined as a mother who can't support a daughter's individuation process and success in many ways because she's carrying her own generational shame around being a woman and so therefore has a difficult time feeling supportive of this daughter who wants to do something different. She becomes jealous or angry of the daughter and may even sabotage her success along the way. And similarly, in the process, the daughter, and we're talking specifically of female relationships here, might reject the traditional mother. How many of mothers of daughters have experienced that from your own child? <laughs> I see some nods. I am sure I've done it to my mom. Um, and so that we, we reject this traditional mother type and seek something totally different. And as I said before, we don't have that thing available to us. It's not there in our culture. Because the masculine in our culture is so dominant, we tend to then be pulled towards the masculine. The good mother is when this mother is fun, and nurturing, supportive, and positive, and separating from her is akin to leaving the Garden of Eden. Because when we get into the world, it's like, wait, my mom was this way, but the world is not this nurturing to my femininity to myself, to my womanhood. The world does not reinforce the good mother. So in any case, there's this kind of fear that the feminine that is programmed into us is that we've been taught that um, three things about being feminine. One, we care for others at the expense of ourselves. Two, we're histrionic. Thank you, Freud. I believe he came up with that. Yeah. Or three, we learn that we can be a vixen or kind of a sex object. And I'll paint a few iconic pictures of this. Think of the extremes between, let's say, like a, a, a Mamie character who, who happily, joyfully cares for the other at the expense of herself. We don't get to know her identity, just that she's a caregiver. Or the June Cleaver type who shows up in heels and an apron and scotch on the rocks when hubby comes home and is just happy to do that, right? She at least has her apron on. I don't remember mine. Um, <laughs> and then we have like the iconic Marilyn Monroe, who killed herself 
because she was so at odds with something in the world, in herself, what she thought she needed to be and who she wanted to be. So our own mothers, grandmothers, great-grandmothers were shaped by this culture too. So I hope that what that can offer us is some grace and compassion that for a long time none of us have known how to do this. We're paving a way. We're finding a way. Catherine Keller calls this split from the feminine t-homophobia or the fear of our depths. So t-hom means is a, a Hebrew word for depths, for the abyss, for the creative uh, fecund abyss that creates everything. And so she thinks that what it really is is this fear of our depths. We are afraid of going deeply inside. That's the feminine. The feminine allows us to go deeply inside. That's feminine energy. And it creates something out of that, out of mm. those depths. So in this split from, the, split from the mother, a chasm opens up in this first stage between the heroine and the mother image. And even inside of herself, this chasm is, not, is open in herself as well. She begins, and this happens so often in adolescence, to reject the mother and to reject her own body. I've been a, a school counselor in many different contexts with primarily Latino children, with primarily black children, with uh, primarily white children. Almost every single adolescent girl I have ever spoken to goes through a stage of rejecting her body. And I, I did. I'm still working on it. You know? <laughs> it's, uh, we, so in this rejection, we begin to discredit our intuition, this deep knowing this trust in the self, and we, we start to look towards our intellect, toward capacities of the mind to fit into what the world needs us to be. And that we lose contact in some sense with a playful, embodied, and often very intuitive inner child. I keep, thanks to you, um, a picture of myself as a little girl near me all the time. It's at my desk, and I, I'm just mindful of her. She is wearing a, a super, Supergirl costume, <laughs> and I just I keep her near me, and that's that's a, that's a great practice. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, there are men who can restore us to the feminine. This is one of them. We're so lucky. Um, but here in this place of kind of feeling disconnected from our own bodies, the descent has begun. We're on the journey, and I I notice in this phase. Uh, as we grow up, women also tend to feel really competitive with each other. And that makes me so sad. We learn to compete instead of to collaborate. What we eventually need healing from on this leg of the journey is to recover our intuition, to recover and trust that deep sense of knowing. Um, I really do believe, I mean, this, that, that was like a powerful learning for me, is um, how often as a young woman, I would just shut off that deeper knowing uh, because it was invalidated or it was um, too emotional or it was too something. And to learn to listen to that, so many things became whole for me. I'm still learning to listen to that. Um, on the psychic level in this phase, uh, we may have dreams of dismemberment and death. We may have, because some aspect of the self is missing. I, we are quite literally, as the title suggests, trying to walk on one leg. A powerful dream I had about this was um, I was playing soccer, which I did play for about 25 years, um, and my tibia came out, and I was literally holding my tibia to my chest. And two kind of gruff, like, henchmen type of looking people just took me off the field and kind of threw me off to the side. But the whole time, I'm clutching my bone to my chest. I'm not willing to let go of that leg, right? So the beauty that's happening in this stage is that the heroine also is learning to become a bit of a warrior. She's learning to unconsciously hold on to something that she doesn't want to lose while also learning to fight for herself. This is the gift of the masculine. We learn to stand. We learn to stand our ground. We learn to find that sort of um, warrior energy in us. And if, if the fight remains, though, if that remains the strongest energy that we follow, we move further and further away from the feminine. And the powers are buried deeper and deeper underground, and we're walking on one leg. Right? You all with me? 
Are we feeling sad? <laughs> there is hope, I promise. <laughs> um, one Jungian therapist states that our culture's collective unconscious, and I think you've mentioned this before, is fundamentally masculine. So this journey is truly one into the unknown. It is the journey into the dark wood or the dark cave. And again, the, to recall Catherine Keller, the journey into the dark is a feminine journey. So no matter what journey we're in, hero's journey, heroine's journey, the journey into the dark is an enveloping and an embrace of the feminine. It's always there. The goal is to get back to our wholeness. Our developmental models in this country, in psychology, in education, and morality, these are also masculine models. Erickson, Piaget, all of these people who developed the sort of stages of development that are all about becoming an individual are based on masculine models. So again, we need new models. So you uh, mentioned Marilyn Monroe. Um, any of you seen the new movie, mm -mm. Marilyn movie? Is it good? It's, it's very good. Any, anybody else mm. got a view about, about it? I haven't seen it. Just I listening won't. to the review of it made me cry. I could hear and oh. just, yeah. Yeah. So um, let's talk about suicide briefly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is a super cheerful Sunday. Suicide is the leading cause of death of human beings mm -hmm. between the ages of 14 and 24. There's a suicide that we know about almost every minute around the globe of a human being. That's the, that's the second leading cause. It's huge. And there are a lot of suicides that we don't know about. Right, but people who have car accidents or they suicide by getting into a road rage incident or suicide by police or a variety of other things. Uh, and notice, notice how we have imposed an American, I think it's American, masculine understanding of suicide. Sometime when you will hear, well, John Doe attempted suicide and the response is, was he successful? Oh, yeah. As if that's a success? It's not, success and suicide should not be used in the same sentence. No. So if, if we don't understand suicide. And maybe I can talk at, at, at a greater depth about it at, at some point. Um, but we don't understand it, except people who complete the act are in a lot of pain. Um, Robert, I know I quote Robert a lot. I'll try to overcome this. Uh, Find some women. By the way, I could interpret that tibia dream for you, but I'd have to charge you. Oh, in, later. Okay. I think I actually called you about it when I had it. Um, Robert had a former client call him one day in desperation, and, and Robert said, what's the issue? And he said, I'm in a crisis. I, I, I'm thinking about committing suicide. And Robert said, oh, good. Come and let me help you do it without harming your body. Mm. 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 So something needs to die to be reborn. Oh, didn't Always. Jesus talk about this? Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. clearly this is in every major religious tradition. Mm -hmm. If you want to have life, you have to be willing to let it go. But mm -hmm. you have to move from one stage of life to another. And that feels like death sometimes. Mm -hmm. So we need, in my humble opinion, to be so good at dying mm -hmm. so that when the real deal comes along, it's not that big a deal. Mm. I've done this before. You've died before. I've died before. Mm -hmm. Died to one way of life, died to one understanding of identity, died to one belief system so that I could live at another plane, another level. Yeah. So we're going to leave you at this like first stage of the journey <laughs> because it's time to go and there's lots more notes here um, that we'll get to. But you know, here we are and wandering through this labyrinth towards a center. The labyrinth goes towards a center. And I want to leave you with the hope that... But, by the way, before oh, you do that... Yeah, nothing before, hopeful. But, but, <laughs> no, no. See, but before you do that, if you want to, the weather's beautiful today, yeah. right? If you want to, you can walk right outside, yeah. go right around the sanctuary, and walk the labyrinth. It's an exact duplicate of the one that's in the cathedral in Chartres in, in France. And you can walk that labyrinth, and it'll be a great daily 
spiritual practice. You can get that out of the way today. And it's a feminine journey. Um, so I'm going to read you a poem. Because even though I think I have, I'm looking at people's faces and y'all are like, don't despair, there is hope. The feminine is not absent, nor is the masculine. We are coming to balance. I think we're yearning for it. And it just is this kind of thing like a cicada. You know, they live 13 years underground before they're born. And they, so it's dormant, but it, it is loud when it comes to life, right? Oh, so, I thought you said potato. Potatoes. <laughs> potatoes are deeply feminine. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> potatoes. Okay. Um, I do love French fries. But I will read a poem by one of my favorite, well, I don't know if she's my favorite, but I love this poem. This is one of my favorite poems. It's called The Second Music. Now I understand that there are, I'll do keep that. poking until we get there. Now I understand that there are two melodies playing. One below the other, one easier to hear the other. Lower, steady, perhaps more faithful for being less heard, but always present. When all other things seem lively and real, this one fades. Yet the notes of it touch as gently as fingertips, as the sound of the names laid over each child at birth. I want to stay in that music without striving or cover if the truth of our lives is what is playing. The telling is so soft that this mortal time, this irrevocable change, becomes beautiful. I stop and stop again to hear the second music. I hear the children in the yard, a train, then birds. All this is in it and will be gone. I set my ear to it as I would to a heart. So uh, I want to thank you for doing this because I can't do what you do. And do I'm really anything. grateful. Mm -hmm. And you'll be back to finish next week. Uh, all nine stages. Yeah. Hmm? Yeah. <laughs> you what? We'll be back. You'll be back. We'll be back. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to sit here with you okay. while you do it. Thanks. Yeah. So the class in the sentence, learn to think mythologically. Okay, no okay. matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo, so watch your step, and we'll see you here next week. Thank you. Thank you for those watching online.